always like to do a little bit of a review before we get started, uh, since you never know who's in the audience that may not have uh, come along with us on our journey through this subject. This is our 21st lesson on the subject of America's culture war. Very briefly, I want to give you a little review of where we've come. And in the first six sessions of this, we looked at the symptoms that indicate that America has spiritual cancer. Specifically, we looked at seven symptoms that are laid out in Scripture that lead to a bad prognosis for the survival of a society. And we saw that each of these are a problem uh, in, even here in our country. Uh, we then looked at the causes of those symptoms, the causes of the cancer, examining several of the devices, the mechanisms and traps that Satan has used to cause the spiritual state of our society. And we asked the question, if I were Satan, what would I do to cause spiritual cancer in a society? And so we looked at eight devices that Satan has been using to great effect in causing the spiritual cancer. There's no doubt, um, uh, it's no doubt that these deadly devices have wreaked havoc, spiritually speaking, on this country and continue to do so. Uh, so we as Christians should be doing everything we can to cast light on these devices in our society and influence those that we can. We then turned our attention to the idea of metastasis in cancer, the spreading of a cancer throughout the body, asking the question, what would be the most effective way from Satan's perspective to spread spiritual cancer throughout a country? Uh, the answer that we're studying is to infect the home. So if you corrupt the, the nucleus of a, of a body, of the society in this case, then the whole society is going to rapidly become diseased. So Satan's war on the home can be broken into three theaters. Uh, dating, that is how we go about setting up our home. Uh, that is who and when we marry. We spent three sessions discussing this idea of dating. Uh, we then turned our attention to the second theater in Satan's war on the home, and that is attacking the institution of marriage as God set it up. Uh, we spent five sessions on that subject, especially looking at gender roles in the home and how those have eroded uh, over the years. And now we have moved into the third theater in Satan's war on the home, and that is child rearing. And this is our fifth session on that subject. Uh, it seems uh, to me, anyway, that uh, very little, uh, you'd probably agree with me, very little has been taught on this subject in the church at large over the last several decades. Uh, there tends to be a, maybe a session here and there on this, a passage here and there, but not much with regard to a systematic study of what the Bible says on this subject, and, and, and we don't see this happening in our homes either, a systematic study in, in preparing our children for raising their own children. Uh, the baby boomer generation of the 60s rejected the uh, child-rearing methods of the previous generations, basically rejected everything of the previous generations by and large, and proceeded to do uh, what was right in their own eyes with regard to everything, including child-rearing. And that has led to several generations that are floundering uh, morally and socially, but more than that, uh, the, the generations around my age seem to have no clue how to rear children. Uh, even in the church, this is a problem. We're floundering there as well. And since we don't really know what we're doing, uh, that makes us vulnerable. We're susceptible to influence by what culture says is, is the right way to rear a child. 
uh, which, mark it down, is bound to be incorrect. It's going to be godless, and it's going to be humanistic, and there's going to be anti-biblical concepts that are brought out. And so we, we haven't been taught much about what the Bible says on this subject, and so it seems that, in general, we decide to have a child, uh, thinking that it's going to be great to have a baby, uh, with the love of, of our lives, and they're so precious, these little bundles of joy, or uh, maybe a child just accidentally happens instead, and so we just jump in and try to figure it out as we go. Uh, we don't really know what we're doing for the most part, but you know, who cares? It's going to be all right. We'll just figure it out as we go. Uh, is that not a recipe for disaster? Is, the, is that a biblical idea to just jump into something this serious without being prepared? Uh, how wise is it to not be prepared, to not count the cost, as Jesus said, especially on something this serious. You know, Solomon had a lot to say about being prudent and looking ahead and anticipating danger. Uh, Proverbs 22.3, one of our memory verses that we do with the kids, a prudent man foresees evil, he anticipates danger and hides himself. Only the simple-minded uh, go on without considering what's ahead and they're ultimately punished for it. How wise is it? to not know what we need to know to mold the soul with which we have been entrusted into what God expects him or her to be and expects us to make them that way. You know, the, our children, of course, are, are not toys that can be broken without there being a cost, uh, that can be neglected without there being repercussions to that, that can be spoiled without there being spiritual decay. Uh, so it is imperative that we understand what the Bible says on the subject rather than just kind of feeling our way through parenting, hoping that we're going to get it right. And so we are, have embarked on a study of what the Bible says about this. We first looked at what the Bible teaches is the ultimate goal of parenting. It's not just to get our kids into the waters of immersion. We are to mold our children in preparation for God. We're preparing them for a life and an afterlife of service to God. Uh, which is a lot more than just getting them into the waters of baptism. And so that process, I've argued, can be broken down into three steps whenever you look over the various passages in Scripture, teaching, training, and correcting, which with correcting really kind of being a, a uh, subcategory of training. And so we're going through each of these in turn, trying to study pretty deeply into what the Bible has to say about these. And as a reminder here where, we, where we've come specifically in this area of uh, teaching, we consider Proverbs 22.6 and specifically the phrase in the way he should go, uh, which I paraphrase this way, train a child now to be the way he should be then, and when he gets there, he'll be that way. And so we look at a child's behavior now, and we fast forward in our minds to what that behavior will look like when it's in its adult, accountable form, if it's left unchecked and allowed to bear fruit. And then we consider, will that behavior as an adult warrant God's disfavor? Would that same behavior in its adult form be ungodly or unchristian? Uh, if so, then we should be sure to train or discipline for the elementary virgin version of those behaviors now. Uh, so in so doing, he'll be prepared for a life that will please and serve uh, God, which is, again, ultimately our goal in parenting. And again, in our teaching, of course, we emphasize what God emphasizes, since it is he 
that we want our children to please in life based on our objective. Uh, it is He who will determine their eternal destiny, so which matters, of course, way more than their short tenure on earth. Uh, God, of course, emphasizes teaching children His Word, Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 20, and specifically instilling in them important virtues that will make them pure and right in His sight. And so uh, we began a study of biblical virtues that are important for a child to be taught and trained in in preparation for adulthood. First, we looked at uh, the first virtue on the list here, self-control. Uh, is that important whenever you are an adult to have self-control? Uh, certainly, and the bulk of the other virtues boil down to self-control. The ability to control yourself from saying what you want to say, from taking what you want to take, doing what you want to do. Uh, we considered, did God expect Job to have self-control in spite of what was going on in his life? Definitely. If anyone ever had an excuse to lose his self-control in response to suffering or anything and melt down or have a tantrum, it was Job. And yet God expected him to control himself. Remember when Job uh, began to just lose himself, wallowing in misery, even questioning the justice of God and what was happening to him, what did God do? Did he pat him? No, his response was, hey, Prepare yourself like a man, Job 38.3, Job 40, verse 7. Control yourself. You can handle this. Now, similarly, a child has to learn to control himself in preparation for life in many different ways, not just when he's in suffering, but in, in doing things that he wants to do that he shouldn't do, control himself. What can a parent do to help with that? That's something that we as parents have got to be thinking about. We looked at honesty as a very important virtue God doesn't mince words on the importance of this virtue. All liars will burn in hell, not just some, all of them. And so we have to have a no tolerance policy on honesty. Now, what about uh, lying in order to save someone else, to help them? No, a lie is a lie. All liars will burn if they do not repent. Now, wait, what about Rahab? I mean, her lie saved the spies. The Bible no more endorses Rahab's lie than it does her harlotry. The Bible commends her faith in Hebrews 11, but that does not mean it endorses everything she ever did. Our children must be taught to be completely honest. Notice, completely honest, just as God is. That's our objective, right? To be like Him. What about responsibility? Taking responsibility for one's actions rather than denying, justifying, making excuses or passing blame to someone else. Kids don't ever do that, right? Uh, so not only taking responsibility, but actually coming forward to admit and confess wrongdoing, and then going beyond that and making it right, whatever that might be. Apologizing. Uh, cleaning up messes, fixing things that are broken, uh, paying for something that's broken if that's the, the needs to be done, making a public statement to anyone that might know about whatever they did. That would all be a part of this idea of taking responsibility, which we looked at last time. And in our last session, we also looked at contentment. So being content with what we get, with what we have. Uh, does God expect that of Christians? Of course. Um, we looked at biblical examples that prove that, spending extra time on the Israelites in the book of Numbers, their constant complaining and discontentment. Uh, Paul looked back on the Israelites during that time period. 
and warn Christians to not be like them with regard to their sins. Nor let us complain as some of them also complain and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Notice that one of the main purposes of the Old Testament for us today is, is to look at the examples of how God reacted to certain behaviors. Their admonitions, their warnings. And so again we have to ask ourselves, am I going to turn a blind eye to my child when he is complaining? Or will I address that issue? Because God doesn't like it. So notice, uh, being happy in life, that's not always easy. Uh, we as adults know that. But you know what? It's possible. It's possible. So as adults, we know that it's all in how we choose to look at things. When we realize, for example, how bad things could be for us, but aren't, that can generate happiness, contentment with our situation. It causes us to be positive, being able to put on a smile. Well, how's a child supposed to know how to do that if we don't teach them and hold them accountable to do that, teach them how to be happy even when things aren't like how they want them to be? So a child can be forced to be happy with the right kind of teaching and then the right kind of motivation to abide by the teaching when necessary. Any child can be happy. If we want our children to be content, we will teach them to accept not getting the toy they want or not getting to go where they want or not getting their way to actually be okay with that. Uh, we'll teach them not to sole up and pout what they, when they don't uh, get the, the Christmas present they don't want, when they don't like the food that they has put in front of them. They say, ew, mom, I, don't, I hate that. But instead say, you know, you know, mom, that's not my favorite, but I'll eat that if you want me to and I appreciate it. Thank you. All right? That's the kind of attitude we want them to have. That's, that's what's expected of them as, a, as adults. We teach our children to be happy with what they have. We deny them many of their frivolous cravings and we discipline them when they fail to accept their lot in life with the right attitude. Uh, but more than being merely content about it, more than teaching them to just be content, we have to teach them to be grateful for what they have. To have an actual, as Mr. Frank said uh, years ago, an attitude of gratitude. I thought that was a great statement. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, when we're, you know, when we're teaching this passage to kids and we're trying to get them to memorize this, what phrase is it that, that inevitably they tend to want to leave out? You know what it is? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. What did I leave out? With thanksgiving, right? That's the phrase we tend to leave out. The idea here is that we all have anxiety. We, we stress, we worry, we get nervous, we're we're fearful about future possibilities and effects. Uh, and the two ways to combat that are, number one, through trusting God enough to go to Him in prayer. And number two, doing so with a grateful, thankful attitude. Remembering that, uh, number one, we should be thankful because it could be worse. And number two, there are so many things in our lives that we should be thankful for that those things should trump any anxiety we might have if we'll but focus on those things and go to God in our gratitude. Okay, now, what does a stressed out, anxious adult uh, look like in its child form, its childlike form? That's what we as parents have got to think about. 
Well, he's a child who's not been taught to handle all suffering with thanksgiving. He's a child who hasn't been taught to accept a parent saying no about something with a grateful attitude. That, that he has a parent he, that he's, who's looking after him, he should be thankful for that, who loves him and accepts him in spite of his mistakes, who blesses him with a multitude of blessings that he doesn't deserve. See, notice with the, with the right attitude, a parent saying no to a child shouldn't affect a child's demeanor or happiness. He's so content with his life as, as it is that, that no, the word no, just bounces off of him. In fact, he should be able to say thank you to his parents even when they say no. So notice the principle taught in 1 Timothy 5.4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. You know, when the widows of the church are in financial need, their older children and grandchildren should step up and help out before the church does. And in so doing, they are repaying their parents or their grandparents. Notice that's good. It's acceptable to God. The idea is that a child and even a grandchild should have an attitude of gratitude for what their parents or grandparents contributed to their current condition. Assisting them financially is a way to express that gratitude. Well, how can we expect our adult children to express that kind of gratitude with his wallet if he wasn't taught gratitude as a young child? Uh, he's going to struggle with gratitude as an adult and follow in the path of the Israelites who failed to be thankful for God's blessings. The Israelites were treated to blessing after blessing from God. They witnessed the, the great plagues of Egypt, uh, but, but not suffering the effects of those plagues. They, uh, they, they were able to be saved from slavery receiving the gold and riches of Egypt upon leaving, uh, being promised an amazing land flowing with milk and honey, and then seeing the miracles that confirmed the truth of that promise. Okay, has, have, have, have we as parents done enough things that make it where our children should trust us and the words that we say? Uh, they witnessed the glory of God in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They were miraculously fed by God hundreds of times, and yet they all too easily forgot to be grateful for their blessings. They complained, they whined with discontentment rather than being thankful. I'm reminded of, a, of our um, family trip to uh, uh, the Ark Encounter in Kentucky with Julie's parents a couple years ago. What a blessing that was, and an expensive gift uh, from her folks to us. Well, we went to the ark during the month of, uh, of Campbell's birthday. And so he received his birthday present from Nina and Granddaddy while we were there. Uh, and and uh, it was a Star Wars dart gun and a, and a stormtrooper figurine. It was really cool. Well, oh man, Davey uh, saw that gun and thought it was awesome. And you know what? He wanted it. In fact, he craved it. He started moping. And they've given me permission to do this. They're not going to beat me up about it later. Not that they would. <laughs> be a little trouble on that. Anyway, so he started moping and complaining about not having this, saying it was unfair, arguing with Campbell about being able to play with that. The blessings that he had just received were promptly forgotten. 
The many blessings that he, that he has at home were forgotten. The fact that, that he would have soon been able to play with that gun since Cam would, would just share it with him. That never even crossed his mind. He coveted that gun and was willing to fight to get it rather than being thankful for what he had. So he soon saw how to be thankful as he was disciplined and then we began taking his things away from him in order to teach him to appreciate what he has. So we as parents must teach our kids to, to have gratitude, to say thank you at all times, even if whatever it is isn't their favorite. Only with a grateful attitude are we going to please God. Next virtue, obedience. This isn't a big deal, right? It seems like this one would be obvious. You know, like surely everyone's got this one down in their home, right? Apparently not, because it, it may be the most obvious weakness in so many children today. A parent says, come here, Johnny. Just a simple statement. Come here, Johnny. And he doesn't obey. You see this all the time, right? You go into Walmart, you see this. A parent says, don't touch that. What does Johnny do? He touches it. He, he, you know, he looks up at her and he touches it anyway, right? A parent says, shh, don't talk. What happens two seconds later? And I'm sure Miss Emily appreciates this. This happens, I'm sure, in her classroom all day, every day. I'd be pulling my hair out. I just wouldn't be able to handle that. Don't run. Johnny does it anyway, right? Sit down and sit still. No, nope. Johnny's not going to obey. A parent says, eat all of your food. What does Johnny do? He moves his food around on his plate and doesn't eat it. Now, on occasion, a child may be trying to obey but perhaps misunderstood what the parents said, or maybe was simply unable to accomplish what he was told to do. I'm not talking about that kind of disobedience. I'm talking about times when, for instance, a child is outright defiant, which has to be corrected, obviously, or those cases where he may just be negligent, which is more typical. He knows how to obey, but he's just not concerned enough about it to get it done. He's sloppy. All right, now again, is God going to allow that? A sloppy disregard for his rules as an adult because of our lack of proper priorities? I mean, after all, I mean, we have no problem. We have no problem doing the things that we really want to do, do we? <laughs> That's not hard for us. So it's possible to do what we decide that we're going to do. Well, what does that mean when we fail to do what we're supposed to do? Well, it must mean that we're not really trying our hardest. We're not really motivated. Notice Romans 1, Paul speaks of wicked people. <clears throat> For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They are backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Notice that's thrown in there. This is part of what makes a person wicked in God's sight. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Well, who's supposed to teach them about that? Who's supposed to hold them accountable? Making sure that they're doing what God expects them to do. Well, obviously, primarily parents are going to be doing that. So a child has to be taught to obey his parents, or the child is displeasing God at that very moment which means the parent is displeasing God because it's ultimately the parent's responsibility to make sure that the child is obeying. So remember what God told Samuel 
to tell Eli. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. All right, parents are going to be held accountable for not restraining their children, making them do what they're supposed to do. Right? Remember the eerie command that the Israelites were to carry out on those children who had never learned obedience? If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. The evil... This is evil we're talking about. Okay, so is teaching children to be obedient crucial? Definitely. And we keep in mind that the reason behind our teaching obedience is that keeping the law, obeying the rules, will make you happy. Why would we not want to push this with our kids? We teach them to obey so that things will go well for them, so that they'll live longer. Right? That's what the Bible teaches on this subject. The one good thing about King Saul is that he provides us with a lot of examples of how to not be. Right? What is the opposite of obedience? All right, now you might say disobedience. But you know there's a lot of other words that are used in Scripture for the opposite of obedience. Recall Samuel's speech to Saul. So Samuel said, As the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He also has rejected you from being king. Now notice in, in typical Hebrew fashion, contrasting ideas are given. Obeying is contrasted with rebellion and stubbornness. When a child is disobeying, he's being a stubborn rebel. Now, whether or not it's, it's outright uh, defiance and intentional or just neglect and sloppiness, which appears to be what it was on this case, just sloppiness on Saul's part. So what does the adult version of disobedience look like? Well, it looks like Saul. So remember, he even had an excuse for why he was, he was actually, uh, why he was doing what he was doing. But the bottom line was, he wasn't obeying. And God viewed his lack of strict compliance as stubborn rebellion against him. So disobedience as an adult looks like Saul. It looks like Cain. Worshiping the one true God was not enough. Obedience to God's commands about worship is essential. Genesis 4, 3-4. And so disobedience as an adult... Notice, it looks like all of those within Christendom who disobey God and they worship the way they want to. Just like a child stubbornly throwing off his parents' restraint and doing what they want to. Disobedience as an adult looks like that. It looks like Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6, who even though he apparently had a good motivation, a good reason, he disobeyed God's instruction regarding the transportation of the ark and subsequently had to steady the ark to his own destruction. Uh, my mind is drawn to some observations that I can't help but make each week uh, when I bring the boys to uh, Trail Life, which is uh, 
basically a more conservative version of, of what the Boy Scouts have become today. So the group is clearly comprised of children whose parents are very connected with their children. They're concerned about their kids' future. Uh, they want these boys to grow up to be good men and to be spiritual, to be different from typical boys today. Uh, that's pretty much the whole point of this uh, trail life group. And it's fascinating to me uh, that it's primarily the, the dads, it's the fathers in particular that are bringing these boys. That's great. Uh, the dads, unlike the standard today, they're involved. But each week I am flummoxed when I observe not not just flagrant disobedience from these kids on a regular basis, which is concerning, but even worse, it's unending flagrant disobedience. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, kids are going to disobey at times. I mean, adults are going to disobey at times. Uh, sometimes even flagrantly. But a child's disobedience should end if we handle the situation biblically. So when, for example, there's an application of the proper amount of biblically commanded pain, a child will obey because he's not a masochist who loves pain. And yet many of these boys who are in this group give no heed whatsoever to authority and instruction. Why? They're, and they're not even corrected by their parents. There you go. Beyond maybe sometimes mere words, which of course the, the children clearly ignore, they haven't been taught even about obedience with words spoken to them about what it means to obey, how they should obey. You know, maybe they have been taught that, although I question it. But either way, they haven't been forced to obey through training and correction the way the Bible teaches on this, which we'll get into the training and correcting, of course, later on in other sessions. So teaching about obedience starts early as in before 12 months. Okay, this starts when they're old enough to comprehend our expectations about things. It starts when they become a danger to themselves. When they're old enough to open the cabinet under the sink and get into the bleach. Whenever they're old enough to touch the electrical socket. And so we begin giving them rules and teaching the importance of obeying us. Obeying no matter what we tell them to do, they're to obey. Now we may tell them to do something that doesn't really matter, but if we tell them to do it, then we have to hold, stick to it. They must be taught to obey us, whatever it is, because they aren't able to distinguish the things that don't matter from the things that do. That's not their job to sort that out. And so we teach them to obey always. I'm reminded of Evie, uh, who was, uh, if you don't know Evie, she's my oldest. And when she was very young, somewhere around 10 months, as I recall, she was crawling at the time and she had learned what it meant. She learned what it meant to whenever I said, or Julie said, come here. Which she did gladly. And we all rejoiced. We, we clapped for her and we egged her on even more. It was a great trick and we were very proud of her. Until one day. She was interested in something else. And she didn't really want to stop what she was doing and come to us when we said, come here. The battle of wills that ensued over compliance with those two words, come here. You know, come on, it's just come here. What's the big, that's not a big deal, right? It is a huge deal. Because we're teaching them the importance of obedience. The battle ensued over an hour. 
as she had to learn to put aside her wishes and obey her parents, obey the authority that God had put over her. And, and each one of the kids so far have had one of those moments at an early age like that. With Celeste, it was the simple command, hey, give daddy a kiss, I've got to, I've got to leave. She knew how to do that. She'd been doing it for weeks. But she decided, you know, I'm just not going to do that. I think she might have been upset that I was leaving. You know, whatever it was, she defiantly, well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, with Davy and Cam, it was something else. But the, but the point was the same. The command was simple. And it didn't really matter in and of itself. But the virtue behind the command did matter, eternally matter. Learning obedience to authority, we, we have to ingrain that in them. Which, by the way, should make you careful what you command as parents. Because the minute you command it, you've got to enforce it. So now, you know, we might take note of the fact that obedience isn't really the same thing as submission. And they're both essential virtues, right? So while obedience is merely complying with a rule or a law... Submission is yielding oneself to it. It's surrendering. So obedience may be merely an outward thing, while submission is inward. See, submission is obedience with the right attitude about it. So I, I think of the child that obeys, but does, does so reluctantly, versus the child that hastens to obey. Which one does God want from us? So I think of the girl that throws a fit when her parents give her a command. That's rebellion, remember, the opposite of obedience. The adult version is the girl who rebels against God's commands. So I think of that versus the girl who humbly complies with her parents' commands without backtalk. No, without, without whining, oh, but, but dad, without fits, without anger. The boy who has his lips stuck out as though he's saying, well, okay, I'll obey because you're bigger than me. But on the inside, I'm not obeying. And one day, I'll be big enough to do what I want. Right? Have you seen that in kids? That's not submission. They may be obeying on the outside, but that is not fixing the problem. We as parents have got to make sure we're clear on that. We've got to be looking at the hearts the way God does. This isn't just outward compliance. You can outward comply as an adult, and, that, and you still won't get into heaven, right? Because God cares about the heart. Will God accept that kind of uh, a lack of submission, even if, even if it's obedience? As accountable adults, we're commanded to submit to many things. The government, to our elders, to wives are supposed to submit to husbands. Is it important for little girls to be learning this as, a, as young, the idea of submission? Submitting to all authority, 1 Peter 2.13 and of course, to God, this is all moving towards that ultimate submission towards God. Clearly, submission as adults is important to God. And so we have to teach our children not to merely obey, but submit to authority. All right, I'll have some other things to say maybe about submission in our, in our next session. We are already out of time. So uh, this is... a. Uh, Six of the, of the virtues so far that we're digging into out of the, I think, 14 that we'll be covering before moving on to step number two in parenting, and that is training. So before you can train and correct a child and therefore mold them into who God wants them to be, uh, firing them like arrows in the right direction, then you have to first, of course, teach them the important virtues that have to be ingrained in their souls and behavior prior to the age of accountability. So teaching and enforcing these virtues at that point uh, was going to be much more difficult if it's not more ingrained by then. Now Satan, of course, 
would just assume you not teach these virtues, right? He just assumed, you know, don't worry about it, parents. Don't teach your kids obedience. I mean, it's not that big a deal, right? <laughs> right? That's Satan. He would love for us as parents to have that attitude. And that's clearly what's going on, right? I mean, obedience is a major problem in kids today. By mastering biblical virtues, we escape the clutches of Satan and his minions. It is by mastering these virtues. Do we want our children to escape the clutches of Satan and his minions or not? Uh, if we want that, then we're going to put all of our efforts into teaching these virtues. Even when sometimes it makes it not as fun for us as parents. These virtues are so important. It's not about us. Our job is to get these kids ready to serve God for eternity. That's it. We've got to put ourselves aside and make sure that they are going to be ready to please God the way he expects them to. Very much appreciate uh, you, you being here and, and wading through this with me. I know several of us have kids, and, as, and I've said before, I do not claim to be any kind of perfect parent or have all the answers. Uh, but I tell you, I, this is biblical. What I'm talking, I'm just trying to give you what the biblical principles state. Uh, and so I'm trying to let God speak on this stuff. I'm not at all claiming to be uh, the, the expert on this subject or anything. My kids are still young. The jury's still out on what's going to happen. But I tell you what, as long as I stick to what the Bible is telling me to do, I can have pretty good confidence about what's going to happen, as can all of us, if we just stick to what the Bible says, right? If we train them up in the way that He expects them to be, then we can have confidence that they're going to go in the right way whenever they get there. If you're not a member of the Lord's Church, we always want to give you an opportunity to become one. In simple faith, turning from your sins and repentance, trying to be more virtuous in your life, confessing Christ verbally with your mouth, being immersed in water for the remission of your sins, being added to the one church of the Bible where you must remain faithful to the end to receive a crown of life. If you need to do that or make some kind of public confession tonight, we encourage you to come forward now while we stand and sing.
you had not had the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper, it has been prepared for you. As we sing this next song, if you'll make your way to the front, you'll be served. 393. 393. 